Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Today, we'll learn about an exciting revitalization underway for the heart of downtown Atlanta. The president of Centennial Yards, Brian McGowan, has said many people just see art as an amenity, but I see it as an economic driver, creating jobs and economic impact. It makes places more desirable. We want Centennial Yards to be about art, culture, music, food, and people. Also joining us with Brian McGowan, Courtney Hammond, creative director for Dash Art Company, talking about Heartbeat ATL, an interactive light art installation located at Centennial Yards. First, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Nobody's free until everybody's free. Those words were spoken by Fannie Lou Hamer, one of the most charismatic figures in the civil rights movement. A new documentary about Mrs. Hamer will air tonight on PBS stations nationwide, including our own WABE-TV. Fannie Lou Hamer's America is part of the Peabody Award-winning series America Reframed, Joy Davenport directed the film. She joins us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. First off, congratulations on this outstanding film, which illustrates why Fannie Lou Hamer's story should be much better known. I read this documentary was 15 years in the making. Would you... Tell us about the origins. Absolutely. And at least 15 years in the making, I believe that Monica Land, who's our executive producer and the grandniece of Mrs. Hamer, I think that she began working on it in 2005. So that would put it at just about 17 years now. And she started from the family angle, just wanting to be able to document and share the history of her amazing relative that she kind of wished that she'd known more about you know, when she was younger. And then over a period of time, the team coalesced through a kind of serendipitous series of coincidences. I, I, at the time, was working on my master's thesis at Florida State University on the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, which Mrs. Hamer founded. And that was an oral history project that became a documentary that Monica saw. And so through my professor at the time, Dr. Davis Hauk, and Keith Beauchamp, the filmmaker that was working with Monica at the time, we all kind of joined up and decided to unite our efforts. And around 2012 was when production properly began on Fannie Lou Hamer's America. Well, it is simply breathtaking. Mrs. Hamer's story is so impressive. Born in 1917 in rural Mississippi, Would you tell us about her early life? Annie Lou Hamer's life was 
both very normal for a sharecropper at the time and also just incredibly difficult. It was a, a life of extreme poverty. She was the youngest of 23 tr children and at the age of 12 was already working full-time in the fields picking cotton with her family. She got a middle school education but had to drop out so that she could go and, and labor with her family just, just to survive. And she over time learned that you know the, the structure of everything around her was skewed against her very survival, against the survival of her family, her peers, her neighbors. And as she reached adulthood, she just felt if there's anything she can do to change that structure, that should be her life's work. And in 1962, she was introduced to the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was a young radical group that was operating in Mississippi to register voters. And as they say from there, it was history. She learned about her constitutional rights that were being kept from her. She helped to organize voter registration. Um, I guess I've moved into her adulthood now, but <laughs> she, but like this, her entire life has been this of interrogating the structures around her from, from being a child and asking why, you know, mama, why are we black? <laughs> why do the white people have everything and we have nothing to that same attitude of looking at what's around her and asking why? Indeed, that turning point came in 1962 with SNCC. If we could go back a little bit to her childhood, there's a haunting story she tells in the film about how she was lured into picking cotton at age six. Would you share that? Yeah, so she was just being a kid walking down the road and the landowner saw her and asked, well, hey, have you ever picked cotton? You know how to do that? And Fannie Lou was like, no, I don't, I don't think so. And so he said, well, if you go out there and you pick some cotton for me, I'll take you to the commissary store here on the plantation. I'll buy you some treats. And this seemed innocent enough. And so Fannie Lou asked permission from her parents and they said, sure, if you, if you want to actually do this, then we'll let you do it, but you got to follow through. And so she did that. And after she had picked some cotton for this man, he took her to the store and bought her some Cracker Jacks and some other treats and then tasked her with picking slightly more cotton and then slightly more. And then, you know, by the time she was 16 years old, she was picking 300 pounds of cotton a day, which was just a normal amount for a child to be picking in the fields. She was put into this funnel, essentially, this illusion of agency, where if you pick a little bit of cotton, you'll be rewarded, but the bar just keeps being raised until it's out of reach. That was her experience with sharecropping. At six years old, he told her if she picked 30 pounds that he would take her to get those Cracker Jacks. And the next week he told her 60 pounds. The very fact that they still referred to it as a plantation where she lived, I, you know, I guess that's where sharecroppers were those who didn't migrate north. There's something chilling about the way that comes across in the film. When she learned very quickly that sharecropping was slavery by another name. And so that's why you'd still call it a plantation because nothing actually changed except for, you know, the being put in this position of the illusion of choice, the illusion of agency, but it was still the plantation. It was still slavery and exploited labor. It's just but with a different set of structures. Mm. That age 12, when she was told she had to quit school, she didn't want to quit school. And she couldn't comprehend why, even though her family and everyone she knew worked all the time, and they still did not have enough food. How did her mother respond when she asked her, why can't we just be white? Well, it's, a, it's an interesting moment in her life because Fannie Lou says it was her first experience being dressed down, essentially, and, and told off because her mom wanted her to take pride in being black, not to question why she wasn't white, but to own her blackness and her femininity, own her, own her pride as a child. And don't look elsewhere for that. Look inside. And then the response was to buy Fannie Lou Hamer a black doll, which was the only doll she had, the only black doll she'd seen. And that was a representation of that pride to say, this is 
what you aspire to, to be yourself. Mm. The turning point we mentioned a moment ago in 1962 came when SNCC, the Students' Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, came to Ruleville, Mississippi. What did she learn from these young people? She didn't know black people could vote. She learned a lot of things. The, probably the most immediate and revelatory thing was that she did have a constitutional guarantee to vote. And that that was something that she and most of her peers always assumed this is just white person stuff. This is not for us. But in fact, it was and it was and it should be guaranteed by the Constitution. And so this, to her, changed everything because she could vote out the sheriff that harassed her. She could vote in a school board that taught Black history. She could do any number of things if she could just get that vote. And so thus began a crusade on her part or, you know, with the folks with SNCC and, and COFO and CORE to get as many people registered as possible to develop centers of power where Black people could actually manage their own destinies. Mm. In the film, she explains that she never sat next to a white person before, and she was trembling at first with some of the volunteers with SNCC. How surprised she was to meet kind young white people among the volunteers with the civil rights workers. She, she was not bitter. No, the I, bitterness would have killed her because how can you live such a challenging, unfair existence and stay bitter and survive? To her, that hope, that belief in people being people and needing to come together is what kept her alive, I believe. And so she saw strength in these young people. And she was in her 40s before she sat next to that white person for the first time. So she held on to that deep self-reliance and belief in the goodness of others to her death. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is Joy Davenport, director of the documentary Fannie Lou Hamer's America. You include television footage of the governor of Mississippi and the Citizens' Council, that would be laughable if it weren't so gravely serious, Joy. At one point, the governor says, Mississippi has the best race relations in the nation. Would you talk about how you intersperse such footage with clips depicting the real situation in order to get the truth across? Well, this was, the Citizens Council was an organization committed to, to fighting against reality because they wanted to say exactly that, that the Black people in Mississippi were satisfied. It was only outside agitators that were coming in and causing problems. So in the film, I cut between Governor Paul Johnson saying, you know, we have great race relations. There's no intimidation. And then local people, SNCC workers in Sunflower County saying, the first time I was beaten was for this. The second time I was beaten was for this, or describing the resistance that they had to voter registration, you know, it, just to give the lie to this propaganda campaign that was the whole point of the Citizens Council. There's a horrifying portion of the film where Mrs. Hamer recounts her arrest and torture in 1963. What gave her the courage to continue her work after that brutal experience? I would like to believe that that courage came from inside, that the, the courage that she had to continue because what it, if they kill her here or they make her stop here, then that sends a message that you can beat us up and we'll stop. And she didn't want that to be the message. She wanted the message to be, if you beat us up, five of us will come next time. And if you beat us five up, 25 of us will come the next time. And so she had a quote, she would say that if she was gonna die, then she'd fall five feet, four inches forward for freedom. That's how much she believed in the American dream, the real American dream. I question America. Is this America? The land of the free and the home of the brave. Sea pie, sea pie. 
With her involvement in SNCC and determination to help register black people to vote, we see Mrs. Hamer's leadership qualities emerge. And we also see how great a speaker she is, powerful, persuasive oratory. Without higher education, she repeatedly demonstrated her intellect. How do you bring that out in the film? The best way that I could think of to do so was to put the film entirely in her words and to structure it just like the speeches that she would give. And so she had a kind of stump speech as she traveled the country to raise support for what they were doing. And the, the film mirrors that. She tells anecdotes about her life interspersed with songs. She would preach from the Bible and then apply that Bible verse to on-the-ground efforts in Mississippi or to the hypocrisy in Washington, D.C. She was trained to read and preach the Bible by her father. And then regardless of what kind of formal education she got, that that carried her far, both through her natural intellect and, and charisma. So the film is her words and the resonance of her voice. And that, to me, was the best way to get across just how compelling a figure Fannie Lou Hamer was and is. And so much of it is in close-up, which makes it all the more intimate. In 1964, she formed the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, the MFDP. This showed some brilliant organizing strategy on Mrs. Hamer's part. What can you tell us about that organization? It was the truest expression of grassroots leadership and political organizing that I am aware of. You know, she and the other members of the MFDP decided to organize in parallel to the official white supremacist Democratic Party and say, if you could allow us to vote, then look how many of us would. And so they had something that they called a freedom ballot, where people would sign up for their freedom to vote and cast this freedom ballot. Now, it wasn't a legal ballot in Mississippi, but the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party used that as a way to organize people around their rights to say, if you could access it, this is what it would feel like. And this is how many votes a candidate like Mrs. Hamer would get. And imagine what you could change by doing that. And it was just door by door, person by person. It took, you know, and, and, and it still takes everybody's focus in a whole community to do something like this. So it wasn't only Mrs. Hamer, but she had the charisma and the local knowledge to unite people across generations. She testified before the Credentials Committee. She wanted the MFDP to be seated as a delegation at the 1964 Democratic Convention. What was the outcome? So the MFDP managed to organize their way all the way to the national level. And from their perspective, they were right. There was no ambiguity to the righteousness of their cause or the fact that legally the bylaws were on their side. They expected to be seated. And yet over the course of that week in Atlantic City, they saw power politics up close. They saw the ways that Lyndon Johnson and his surrogates twisted people's arms. So what started as a sure thing suddenly became a close call. And then when they finally sat down for the credentials committee to vote on who was the rightful delegation from Mississippi, they had lost almost all of their support because of all of that backroom arm twisting. There was this was an example that was told to me by Reverend Ed King that you know, that while they were up there in Atlantic City, there was a delegate that was going to support them, but her husband was up for a judgeship. And she was told, if you support the MFDP, your husband's not going to become a judge. And yet this man, this 
this judge to be was a black man. And so they were weighing as, as the MFDP, what are, we, what are we doing here? If us being seated means that there'll be one fewer black judge, what kind of politics is this? Lyndon Johnson even cut off Fannie Lou Hamer from broadcast television because her words were just too threatening to his agenda, that this was what they encountered in Atlantic City. And they were offered a compromise that they ultimately refused to take because they said, you can't compromise with the truth. And yet, how ironic, or just deserts. Pressure from the MFDP helped to bring about passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1965, which LBJ took credit for. The Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party was formed because the Democratic Party at the time in Mississippi was segregationist. Would you give us the percentages and numbers of people whom she helped register to vote? Oh gosh, off the top of my head, I don't have the precise numbers. I can say that between 1964, which was the kind of biggest push for the freedom registration, the passage of the Voting Rights Act, by 1968, there was a majority the majority of eligible Black people in Mississippi were registered to vote. It took four years in a federal law to go from zero representation to actual representation. Director Joy Davenport, her new documentary, Fannie Lou Hamer's America, is airing tonight on WABE-TV as the season premiere of America Reframed. We'll return with more of our conversation in just a moment. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. Let's return to my conversation with the documentarian Joy Davenport. Her film, Fannie Lou Hamer's America, is airing tonight on WABE-TV at 9 p.m. In the documentary, we see that Mrs. Hamer encountered some resistance from unlikely sources. And here, Davenport recounts what Congressman Adam Clayton Powell once said to Hamer. He said a number of things to her, but you might be referring to when they were challenging the congressional seating of those yes. elected um, representatives from Mississippi. She. Annie Devine and Victoria Gray went to Washington to continue the, the logical extension of the MFDP's challenge to say, okay, you wouldn't see this at the convention, but we're not done pointing out that this is wrong. So now we, we're going to challenge the seating of the elected representatives because they also do not represent the state. And Adam Clayton Powell, who was the Speaker of the House at the time, said, essentially, if we let you get away with this, then we're going to have to do this all over the South. And Fannie Lou Hamer, you know, quickly retorted that if this has to happen all over the South and throw them out. <laughs> it's as simple as that. And this was her relationship to power. They can make all the excuses they like, but they're just talking around the truth that she is bringing to their attention. 
Yeah, but why wouldn't he have wanted it all around the South? Well, I would assume, and I will have to double check, but this was a Democratic representative. And this was at a time when the Dixiecrat coalition of the South is what was giving Democrats their majorities. And so you had a lot of resistance from Mississippi and Alabama, especially Georgia as well, I'm sure, to saying, you know, we can't allow this kind of politics to hijack our party. And you find you have LBJ who signed the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act admitting openly that we're, we're about to lose the South for a generation. And with Nixon's Southern strategy for wooing away disaffected Dixiecrats, you see that coming to pass. Yes. She also had pushback from Roy Wilkins. This seemed personally hurtful, at least the way it is brought out in the film. But she had a great retort about the NAACP really stands for the National Association for the Advancement of Certain People. What, what was the issue with Roy Wilkins? So Roy Wilkins was the president of the NAACP at the time and a titan of the movement in terms of the legal gains made during that time. But privately, when he spoke to Mrs. Hamer, he said, essentially, you're ignorant. You don't know what you're talking about. You've made your point, and it's time for you to go home. And that was wrong, for one thing. <laughs> and, um, and it was also representative of the kind of misogyny that she faced within her own movement and the kind of barriers that were placed between people who did not look or sound the part for the national movement because they were trying to cultivate an image and Fannie Lou Hamer did not match that image. And so at the time she was marginalized very deliberately. It, it's also difficult to process in hindsight, I guess you have such a, a brilliant person here speaking for freedom, working on behalf of freedom, but she didn't look like they wanted her to look. She sure had a command of language, though. Um, in addition to that NAACP remark, there's a part in the movie where she talks about America as being the land of the tree and the home of the grave. And I, I thought of Muhammad Ali and what a natural poet he was and, and how musical. Was that one of the more exciting parts of your work on Mrs. Hamer's life? It was definitely exciting to immerse myself in her perspective and to see the illusions of America fall away the more I could understand her life and the way that she worked to try to make America a real thing and not just a dream. Because the thing about Mississippi, and that she points this out in the film as well, is it's not just a local problem, it's an America problem. It's sort of like this ground zero for where the truth of things can be found if you're willing to look at it. And that's all that she wanted to do. And ultimately that, that fire got passed on to me and everyone else on this project to say, the truth has been here all along, and this is Fannie Lou Hamer's America. We are living in it, and it's up to us to do something about it. Like Dr. King, she came to protest the war in Vietnam and especially saw the tragedy of its impact on Black soldiers, on poorer people, and I was hoping you'd talk about how she viewed the intersection of voter rights, education, and economic opportunity in this part of her life. She was one of the first civil rights activists to speak out against the war in Vietnam. I believe that she was fully two years before Dr. King spoke out against it. Oh, really? She, yes, she, and she even beat SNCC to that. She was, she was personally arguing against it even before SNCC officially adopted the anti-war stance. And it's because she saw that intersection of economics, education, opportunity, and political agency, how ultimately 
the people around her, the poor folks, young folks especially, which were where she saw the truest hope. She saw them being drafted into this war to go overseas to allegedly ensure democracy for someone else, whereas here at home, she's still fighting to have it for her and her neighbors. So this is how things get co-opted, is if you're at one end of the movement, you're talking about voting rights, and someone over here is talking about economic rights, and someone over here is talking about food rights, and she would say, no, it's all the same thing. This is what we now commonly refer to as intersectionality, because she lived at the intersection of all of this nexus of power, and power meaning every kind of military, industrial, educational, industrial, agricultural, industrial complex in this country. All her life, she was aware of hunger and the importance of feeding the hungry. In 1969, she established the Freedom Farm Cooperative. Why was that revolutionary? Because this was the answer to what we just talked about with that intersection of power, is that the Freedom Farm Cooperative can provide a platform for the shared destiny of Black people in Mississippi, poor people in Mississippi, because it wasn't only for Black people, it was for whoever was poor and in need. She would say that she'd walk a mile for anyone who was hungry, Black or white. And the Freedom Farm Cooperative was a co-op founded in Sunflower County by Mrs. Hamer that was intended to provide food, to provide housing, to provide clothing, to provide education, and to provide jobs for the people in her community that didn't have those things. And she could see that if you don't have those things, then you can't go out and change the country because you're being shackled by your circumstances. This was her way to try to break the shackles of those circumstances. This film is airing at a time when Black women are being acknowledged for their work at the forefront of the fight for voting rights. Are you surprised by, I don't want to say how little known she is, she certainly has recognition, but how much better known she ought to be? I am both surprised and not surprised. And I would say that probably the, the lack of surprise is where most of my sentiment lies, because I grew up not knowing about this. I was, you know, I, I, I was in college before I heard about her. And the more I understood of her life, the more it's clear that her story is a dangerous one to those who wish to consolidate power. She was silenced in her own time. She was not remembered in the ways that other titans of the movement are remembered because it's simply not possible to whitewash her and use her life or her words for some other agenda. So on the one hand, it is very surprising because of how dynamic, how influential, and how powerful this woman was. But it's, it's not surprising because this country has a habit of silencing and minimizing dynamic, powerful women, especially women of color. Director Joy Davenport, her new documentary, Fannie Lou Hamer's America, is airing tonight on WABE-TV. That's at nine o'clock tonight and again overnight at 3 a.m. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, a long-neglected area of downtown Atlanta gets a brand new heart. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. There's a new way of looking for the heart of Atlanta. Heartbeat ATL is an interactive light-based art installation located at Centennial Yards in downtown Atlanta. This immersive light experience is in an area previously known as the Gulch. President of Centennial Yards, Brian McGowan, and Courtney Hammond, the creative director of DASH, 
join me now. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yes, of course. Brian, for those who may not be familiar with the Centennial Yards area, can you give us a brief overview of its history and why it was formerly known as the Gulch? Yes, happy to. So uh, the Gulch now Centennial Yards is a a 50-acre hole in the heart of the city, right in downtown Atlanta, across the street from Mercedes-Benz Stadium and uh, State Farm Arena. And it's been this hole since forever. It was originally uh, rail yards, and back in the early part of the century, the rail yards became very congested. And so they built viaducts, they built the roads up over the rail yards so people could move through downtown. And over time, those rail yards went away and those viaducts stayed in place. And so the Gulch, as it's affectionately known as to Atlantans, has become a place for tailgating and parking for before games, Falcons games and Atlanta United games, and a lot of parking for some of the federal government buildings. And has become an eyesore and a, a real kind of tear in the fabric of what could be a great downtown. And Centennial Yards Company is going to build a, a brand new mixed use project. This will be office, residential, and retail, up to 12 million square feet of uh, brand new buildings in downtown Atlanta. Hmm. I don't that in early 2018, our former mayor, Keisha Lance Bottoms, pushed city council members to greenlight the gulch. And then by November of that year, Mayor Bottoms was able to sign the redevelopment plan into law. Is that what enabled you to go ahead with the new development? Yes, that and a few other things. This is an enormously complicated site to develop because it, it was abandoned rail yards. There were 12 different owners, there's air rights and easements and rail lines running through the property. So all of that work has gotten done. It took years to get all that work done, but it's all done and we're ready to go vertical. We're ready to start building buildings. And this is the year where we'll see ground being broke and buildings starting to go up in what is known as the Gulch. Let's talk about Heartbeat ATL. Courtney, how did the partnership between Dash Studio and Centennial Yards come about to create this installation? Well, we were approached by Brian and his team at Centennial Yards several years ago, actually, to start brainstorming together how to create a point of access for the community into the project through artwork. And I was just so grateful that that is the way that they wanted to launch the program. We worked for, you know, I would say about a year or so, sort of talking about the history of the property and the future and brainstorming together about how we wanted to sort of kick off an art program. One of the sessions, someone on CIM and Centennial Yards team sort of said something quite poetic. They said, you know, it feels somewhat like uh, a heart has been scooped out and that's what's missing. And I I did think that was beautiful, both like in a visual, you know, the property sits below the viaducts and is the original ground floor for the city. And it also, you know, was once a very like prominent connector for all the arteries that go into the neighborhoods surrounding it, you know, and is, is currently a dividing point. And so that was a really lovely prompt to go back to a creative team and a set of artists to start thinking about how to create an ability for Atlantans to collectively sort of defibrillate that heart back to life and signal that something is coming. And Lois, I I just to add to that point, kind of an affirmation of what Courtney saw there as an opportunity, we had Ambassador Andrew Young in our office a couple of months ago, and he was talking about the site, and he put his hand on his heart, and he looked out the window, which overlooks the site, and said, this has been the hole in my heart since I ran for mayor. 
Oh, wow. Yes. And he also pointed out to the, the site of the Richard B. Russell Federal Building, which is in the middle of our site, and said, there used to be a train station there. When I came to Atlanta for the first time, he said he was, I think he said he was eight years old. That That's where he came to Atlanta, was in our site. I like the term you used, Courtney, very much a cardiology reference. Defibrillate, sort of kickstart, you know, the space back to life as a collaboration of, you know, visitors and and the project. Well, just love those double entendres. (laughs) (laughs) Brian, it is so meaningful for those of us who consider the arts redemptive to read that you said you want Centennial Yards to be about art, culture, music, food, and people. Why should it be so difficult to draw people back to the heart of downtown, to the heart of Atlanta? I mean, this is going to take work, isn't it? Yes, a lot of work. Uh, this is a, as I mentioned earlier, an enormously complicated project, but this is the heart of our city. And when there's a major national event, whether it's a Super Bowl or, or a, a basketball game and the blimps and the planes are flying over our city, you know, the view is of a, a downtown that is really emphasized by parking lots. And, and in fact, the Gulch is just a giant parking lot. So they're the heart of the city is our property and there's there's really no real economic activity there. So our, our vision is that when the project is built and this project is going to take eight to 10 years to complete, that this will be the place that when you have friends or family visiting from other parts of the country or, or around the world, you will want to take them here to experience Atlanta art and culture and food and music and people, right? This should be the place where you should want to take your friends and family to really experience uh, who we are, the soul of our city. Hmm. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights, speaking with Courtney Hammond, creative director for Dash Art Company, and Brian McGowan, president of Centennial Yards. We've been discussing their new artistic collaboration, Heartbeat ATL. Courtney, how did the pandemic fit into the idea for Heartbeat ATL? Was was it part of the inspiration? Absolutely. I mentioned we started talking about how to start the art program several years ago, you know, and that was in the midst of the pandemic. And we had just a little bit of a hope that it was subsiding at the end of, I don't know, in the middle of last year. And there were- What year is it again? I have no concept at all. But I know that there were, you know, a lot of other options on the table, but, you know, just this project specifically started to fall into place almost like kismet, you know, and whenever Brian and and his team and my team were all speaking, all of those sort of um, parallels and the conversation of Heartbeat ATL started to line up. And also Omicron, you know, started rearing its head, you know, and at that point we were going into the third year of, you know, semi-quarantine. It's been a really long time since people felt comfortable shaking hands or hugging each other and introductions are far more formal and and without touch. And we wanted a piece that also allowed people to give and share love because not only is this property a piece of disconnect over the past 50 years, but over the past three years, there's been a disconnect between human touch and showing love. And so That was also really important for us to be able to give people the opportunity to share that kind of heart with the property or with each other and as a collective. You know, around the same time, someone sent me an iPhone text, and I don't know if you've ever received this, but you can press your fingers down twice really quick on the text and it sends you a beating heart. And I thought, well, that was a pretty efficient way of getting the communication across and it made me feel really good. And so that was sort of the development for the design of the piece itself came out of really like, again, just another thing that fell in line with how to efficiently share love through visuals 
and interaction with technology, which has become so important in the way that we communicate, you know, with physical distance between us in the past three years. Well, would you describe the appearance of the light display and how viewers can interact with it? Sure. The piece is designed to be seen from above. And as you walk along the viaducts and the bridges, if you come out of State Farm Arena, for instance, just walk across the street into onto the viaduct and look out into it. And you'll see a rainbow display of gorgeous color in the parking lot that symbolizes breathing as if it was a torso. So it is moving light, but it's almost like it's breathing. And if you scan the QR codes located all along the bridges, you will see a heart pop up on your phone. And that heart, you press it and it will create the entire light show. Um, you'll be able to basically defibrillate what is slowly breathing into a heart beating, six hearts beating inside the property over 20 acres of action that you've created with one interaction with the project. And your phone will also create sound that mimics the pace of a human heartbeat. So it's living slowly, but if you interact with it, it comes to life wow. um, immediately. Amazing. There's also another artwork inside of the property along the rail line. Um, we also wanted to create an intimate sort of immersive light piece by Lizette Correa, art addict. And she has created what's called Let Go and Grow on one of the more prominent vertical areas as a, a light mural through patterning. She has showcased um, these monstera leaves, which she uses quite a lot in her artwork. But monstera leaves are known to shed quite a lot so that they can grow stronger and more vibrant. And this was her way of talking about the property and its history and how we should all sort of let that history go so that we allow this property to become the connector that we've always wanted and help it grow strong. Great metaphor there. The artist goes by art addict, and that has an unusual spelling. <laughs> Can you tell us her name again? Sure. Her name is Lizette Correa. She has a background in fashion and has been really um, an important figure in the mural community in Atlanta in the past several years. She's one of many artists. There are about 35 to create these projects and one of the leading sort of designers for that Heartbeat ATL and also a collaborator on Let Go and Grow is an artist named Danny Davis who goes by Protect Awesome. So also a cool moniker. Yeah. But, um, you know, a, a lot of sort of pivotal talent um, had to come into play to make these, you know, inventions <laughs> come to life and make them accessible to anyone. Brian, why did you want this heart installation to signal the beginning of your new development? Well, what we're seeing here is the birth of a new community. And so, you know, besides creating jobs and, you know, a new center for the city, we're going to be building three to 5,000 apartments. So there'll be, you know, between four and 8,000 people living here. So, you know, Heartbeat was just seemed so appropriate to, uh, as we often describe, you know, this is the hole in the heart of the city. And, you know, downtown Atlanta, you know, needs revitalization. And we're, with our project and projects that are happening all over downtown, we're starting to see that Heartbeat coming back. There's investment happening. There's construction cranes going up. Uh, we opened up an apartment, uh, a new apartment building, 162 apartments uh, in the middle of the summer, this last summer, and all the units leased up within 45 days, which surprised a lot of people that, you know, that there were people who wanted to live downtown. I've often told people people weren't living downtown because there was no place to live downtown. People want to live downtown. <laughs> Yeah, there, we have two MARTA stops and we have the Georgia World Congress Center, you know, all the government buildings and offices are down there. There's thousands of jobs. There's just not much else to do. And so that's what we're seeing here with our project. And we thought, you know, Courtney's concept and the work that her team did really kind of 
personify what, what is happening in downtown Atlanta right now is the heartbeat starting to come back. You know, it's going to be a really exciting few years ahead, and we're going to build something that all Atlantans will be very proud of. Courtney, how long will Heartbeat ATL be available? Um, we're excited that the piece has been up since January and will run through March 4th. We're excited to see so many people interacting with it every single night from 7 to 11. It's on and you can see multiple hearts popping up on, on the phone, meaning that multiple people are playing with it at the same time. Courtney Hammond, creative director of Dash Art Company and president of Centennial Yards, Brian McGowan. Heartbeat ATL is located at Centennial Yards in downtown Atlanta. It will be on display through March 4. More information is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., producer Julia Rosenberg tells us about her animated film Charlotte with Kira Knightley in the title role. The true story of a young artist killed during the Holocaust is streaming as part of the Atlanta Jewish Film Festival. Plus, curator Shania Harris shares details on Lou Stovall of Land and Origins. The exhibition on view at the Georgia Museum of Art in Athens. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at LOIS. R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E at Latin. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.